Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the first message of our new series, Harsh Truths. This message comes from Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. And if you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. And without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. For those that are regular attenders at our church, you know that we've been in a study of uh, the middle of Matthew for, for a number of months now. And we took a little break on that uh, through the holiday season doing something different. Last week, Joseph did a wonderful job looking at Ephesians. And, uh, but we're going to dive back into our study of Matthew. We're going to be looking this morning at Matthew chapter 18. If you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Matthew 18. We're going to look at the first couple verses there in Matthew 18. And uh, we're going to kind of be diving right back in. And, and there's some, it's a powerful passage, a challenging passage that we're going to look at. And uh, so again, I'd encourage you not only open it up, leave it open throughout our time so you could follow along. All the points always, we try to come straight from the Bible. So if you have your Bible open, you can see uh, not only what I'm saying, but where it comes from. But let me begin by reading the passage we're looking at, Matthew 18, starting in verse one. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever calls one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. May God bless the reading of this word. Let me pray. Father, I thank you again for the privilege that we have to come. Father, to be able to worship you, to be able to enjoy you. Father, now even to be able to come and dive into your word. Thank you for the things that you continue to teach me in my own study. And I pray now that your spirit would speak through me, even in spite of me, Father, to communicate the truth of your word, that, um, that my opinions would get lost. And somehow, Father, that you would communicate your timeless truth uh, from, from the heart of your heart, to each one of our hearts and help help us to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's work that we would hear and not only understand but receive and respond to whatever you have for us this morning. Pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. And as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel, we're going to see that as in this part of the gospel, you know what what Matthew does is he records some of Jesus' teaching, many of which he kind of gives us some, we're going to call them harsh truths things that challenge some of the traditional wisdom of our day. And, and not only that, but kind of challenge us in a particular way. And this morning, we, we pick up here in chapter 18, he's really dealing with the whole idea of, of greatness and, and the disciples and even our own desire for a sense of greatness. It's the issue that Jesus takes on right here as we see in, chapter, in verse one of chapter 18. They come to him right in the beginning. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Or put another way, they're really saying, you know, which one of us is most important? Which one of us should be put in charge? And some that have studied the whole gospel of Matthew will look at this and they'll look at the context and they'll say that the context maybe even suggests something of what was happening. You see, in the chapters right before this, Jesus several times had predicted his own death and his resurrection. In fact, in a couple verses right before this, at the end of chapter 17, we read, you know, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered in the hands of men and they will kill him and he'll be raised again on the third day. And so they realize that Jesus is about to die. And a lot of people speculate what they're doing is they're saying, well, Jesus, if you're about to die, you know, who are you gonna leave in charge? You know, who's, who's the most important? Who's the one that you wanna, you know, kind of leave in charge of this whole thing? 
In fact, both Mark and Luke record the same event. And in both of their, uh, of their gospels, they, they tell us that, that you know, they weren't coming and just asking Jesus this theoretical question, you know, who's greatest? But they were actually coming because an argument arose amongst them as to which of them would be greatest. And so they're, they're arguing, you know, you know, which one of us is gonna be greatest? Who is in charge? Now think about this, and, and they're kind of, you just suggest they're really out of touch. I mean, here you have Jesus just had predicted his suffering and his death, and, and they're turning around, and next thing you know, they're saying, you know, okay, Jesus, when you die, who are you gonna put in charge? Who's greatest? Now, before you kind of nod too much and, you know, think too little of their immaturity, you know, I wanna ask, are we really that different? You know, I think that we actually have a natural desire for greatness or for significance. We're born with that. And, uh, and the, the fact of the matter is, is that we don't wanna live a life that's meaningless. We don't wanna live a life that's insignificant. We wanna live a life that in some ways we leave the world in a better place than we found it. You actually see this in, in stories, in movies that people connect to, things, the stories that kind of stand the test of time. So think of some of the really popular you know, stories and movies. Uh, you think of Star Wars and you have Luke Skywalker, you know, who's this you know, guy from nowhere that suddenly was thrown into the, uh, the crisis and became great. Or, or the later ones, it was Ray, who likewise was kind of the girl from nowhere. Or, or you think about the great book, best movie ever made, you know, Lord of the Rings. And would you have, you have Frodo, who's you know, a hobbit, he's a nothing. People don't even know that hobbits exist or, or a totally different genre. You have Spider-Man and you know, this kid that just was out of nowhere. And, and all of them tell a story of a, you know, of a man or a woman who's insignificant, that their life no one even notices. And somehow they, they go on this journey of self-discovery, a journey that often includes conflict and pain, but in the end, they somehow become great and they make a difference in the world. Even take the world, you know, the, the world-leading uh, box office hit from last year in the movies, and what do we see? It's the same thing. It's, you could say even a fa failed Italian plumber uh, from Brooklyn can fall into the wrong pipe, and next thing you know, he's fighting Bowser and he's saving the world. I mean, it's, you know, you, you look at it, in spite of all seemingly these different, totally different stories and books and movies, they're all telling basically the same story. They're all saying that here's this nobody that suddenly is put into crisis and steps up and becomes significant. Now why? Because I think there's something to hear about the human story. Why are these things so popular? Because there's something in all of us that says we wanna be significant. We wanna think that we, we feel like that we're nobody, but if we were thrown into that crisis, that somehow we would step up and we would make a difference. So I think there's a sense that I could say, I think we all have this deep desire for greatness and for significance. But let me ask, is that wrong? Is, it, is this desire for greatness wrong? When the disciples asked Jesus, you know, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, were they wrong in asking that question? Were they wrong in wanting to be great? Well, look at Jesus' response. Look at verse two. After, and calling to him a child, he put him on the, in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now the first thing I want you to notice here is that when they asked him about who was to be greatest, or in Matthew or Mark's account or Luke's account, when they were arguing amongst themselves who would be greatest, Jesus didn't rebuke them for wanting to be great. 
He didn't rebuke them for their desire to be great. He, he instead redefined greatness. He never told them that, you know, man, how dare you desire to be great. That's, that desire is wrong. Instead, he said, no, that's a, in a sense, that's a good desire. But what you think greatness is, that's what's wrong. Now, what does it mean towards us? I think when we look at this, is the desire for greatness wrong in our lives? Should we desire greatness? Well, let me put that question in a different way. If you have children, do you want to be a great parent? Do you want your kids to look up to you as a great example that they want to emulate in their life? If you're married, do you want to have a great marriage? Do you want to be a great husband or a great wife? Do you want to be that kind of example that, you know, that, that in a sense your spouse would even brag about, you know, man, I'm just so blessed to have this, this tremendous spouse. Is that a good thing to desire that kind of greatness? Or when we think about even in our, our Christian walk, do you want to have a great knowledge of the Bible, have a great wisdom, great theology, so much so that people recognize that so that they come to you and they ask for input, they ask advice? Is that a good thing? Or as a church, do we want to build a great church? Do you want to have a great ministry so that you have a significant impact for Christ in the midst of the world? Do you want to live a life of significance so that the end of your life God himself would call out and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've lived a life of significance. Is that a good desire? I think it is. You see, we all should aspire for greatness. God has built that into us. He, he wants us to pursue that. He wants us to become great men and women who have a powerful relationship with him and who then live that out in such a way that we make a significant impact in the world. God has built that desire into us. But I think what we've got to see is this desire, like so many other desires that God has built into us, has also been impacted and corrupted by sin. And so that we have this good desire to live a life of greatness, but that, that desire is now hijacked in such a way that if we, if we do what's now natural to us, we pursue greatness in the wrong way. If we live by the world's value system, it's now broken that so that, so that we're pursuing something different than God created us for. It's natural to pursue a, a good and God, it's, uh, you know, greatness and significance, but if we do it in the wrong way, if we live in the way the world does, what we're gonna do is we're gonna be an immature follower of Christ. We're never gonna live into the greatness that God wants. In fact, we're gonna often do things that are contrary to God's value system. So when we look at this and the disciples came and asked Jesus, who is the greatest of heaven? Jesus, knowing their thoughts, used it not as an opportunity to correct them about the wrong desire, but to correct them about the wrong definition. He redefined the whole concept of greatness. And in order to teach them, what he does is he takes a child and he calls his child into their midst and he puts him there and, and uses his child in a sense as an object lesson. And, and as they argue you know, for their desire for greatness, you know, Jesus doesn't say, well, you're wrong in wanting that, nor does he say, in a sense, well, no, don't aspire to greatness. He said, okay, no, I want you to not see greatness in the world, but let me tell you what true greatness is. When he calls his child himself, verse two, it just says a child, but it's actually a word that is most usually translated a young child. He would refer to maybe a toddler or a preschooler, or a, you know, think about a, a four-year-old. And he places his child in the midst of the group and then uses as an object lesson. And he said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. And this is, in a sense, the path to greatness. What's he saying? Well, let's first of all think about the picture he's using. He's using the picture of a child. That's the illustration he brings in here. Now, it's easy to misread this. It's actually even in the little video we had beforehand, it almost had this idea, well, you need to have a faith of a child. And, and sometimes, you know, there are things that in the Bible that talk about that, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. You know, we, sometimes we can look at a child and we can say, you know, they're innocent, they're wonderful, and they're trusting. And anybody who has had a young child knows that they could also be very demanding and very selfish and kind of very nasty to each other. And they have no emotional self-control. And so he's not saying, okay, just be, be like a child in the sense of that we should copy child, childlike attributes. What he's saying is that we should take the status of a child. That's what he's talking about here. In fact, it becomes evident if you look at the verses right around this, both in right before and after, they're talking clearly about status. Go back again to 18.1. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's talking about status in the kingdom of heaven. And then he comes down at, at, at verse four, whoever humbles himself like this child, again, it's a status thing. It's lowering ourself. That's where we discover the status of being great. It's whoever takes the lowly position and puts himself in the humble position of a child. Now that can be a little challenging for us to see, primarily because our culture is so different in the way that we view children as opposed to the time, that time and how they view children. You know, we live in a very, I would say, child-centric culture. Uh, you know, if you have children, you know that so often you know, you're, you're organizing your whole family and your events around your kids and their, all their interests and all their needs. And I think about even my own family. I mean, this past Christmas, we, it was our first Christmas that we celebrated with a grandchild. And it was amazing as I sit back and look at it at how much our, our whole Christ, family Christmas celebration centered around this little eight-month little, little old boy. And uh, so there were times that we had the whole family, we have all these adults, and all of us are focusing on trying to do something to make this eight-month-old eight laugh. You know, it's kind of like he's, we're centered around him. Or we have a, one of those, you know, digital picture frames. And, and Sandy uploaded all these Christmas pictures on the dis, digital ki- picture frame. And, and I was watching it a couple days ago, and I realized, you know, every picture has Nikki in it. I mean, it's like, you know, there's more than just that one person. Now, I want to admit, I mean, he's really cute. I mean, it's like, you look at that, you say, yeah, you want to have that piece of a really cute little boy. I mean, I agree with that. But there's more than this one little child in our family. And um, now, as child-centric as our culture can be, ancient cultures were pretty much the opposite. And, and children were ignored. They weren't valued. They had no social status. And if this was true even in the Hebrew culture, in a religious environment, and if, you were, if they weren't your children, I mean, you were basically told it was a waste of time. It was a bad thing to spend time with kids. In fact, let me give you an example of that. There's a book called the Talmud, which was kind of a non-biblical um, book of religious writings by the Jewish religious leaders. It was kind of their interpretation. This is what the law meant, you know, the Bible meant. And, and one Talmud writer basically wrote that, you know, spending time with children was worse than a waste of time. Let me read. Here's what he wrote. This was in the Talmud at that time. Morning sleep, midday wine, chattering with children, and tearing in places where men of common people assemble destroy a man. So you get that? Okay, so, you know, sleeping late, midday wine, drinking in, in the middle of the day, chattering with children, those are all destructive. Those are all bad things. And this was a religious teaching of the day. And we see this attitude in Matthew 19, 
where you had parents bringing children to Jesus and the disciples are rebuking them and sending away and Jesus corrects them and says, no, let the little children come to me. So here in Matthew 18, when it says that we need to become like children, what Jesus is teaching is that not that we need to become childlike, but that we need to willingly take the status of a child, someone who had no status. Instead of, instead of seeking a high position, we have to willingly take a low position. In verse 2, he says, unless you t uh, turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, right now you're pursuing status, you're pursuing significance, and unless you turn that around, and instead of making it all about pursuing up mobility and recognition, and instead go the other way and take the low position of, of a child, you know, you're going to totally miss out on the meaning of the kingdom. You're going to miss the greatness God designed for you. He continues in verse four, whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We need to humble ourselves. We need to willingly take the position of humility. Now, some people might interpret that as to say, well, humility means, you know, that we lower ourselves, that we have a low self-image, that we don't think much of ourselves. Well, is that what humility is? Who's the ultimate example of humility? The ultimate example is Jesus. Okay, did Jesus have a low view of himself? He thought he was God. That's a pretty high view of himself. He thought he was a creator. He knew, he properly knew he deserved, deserved worship. And yet he humbled himself, choosing a low position, not only that of a child, but that of a servant, even to the point of serving us to the point of death. Look at how it's described in the book of Philippians chapter two. Have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who thought, though was in the very form of God and did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He knew that he was equal with God. He didn't have to strike after it. That's, that's his self-identity, but yet he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the, to the point of death, even death on the cross. He emptied himself, he lowered himself, and that's the ultimate picture of, for us to look up to, to seek to emulate, to be like that. And we will never humble ourselves to that degree, but that's the path that Jesus lays out for us. But then how do we do that? Part of this understanding there's a basis for this greatness that is different than the basis of greatness in the world. Let's go back to the world's ideas of greatness. It was the mindset that was driving the disciples when they came to Jesus and said, who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Again, in Mark and, and, uh, and Luke, they're arguing over greatness. In the minds of the world that they were coming with, greatness is something that, is, that you argue for, that you struggle for, that you win. Greatness is something that is achieved, something that is deserved. You know, and I think about the disciples as they're arguing over who's going to be greatest. I think that, they were probably expressing not only their argument, but I should be greatest because, I should be left in charge because. There was an argument about why they deserved it. I can almost imagine what they said in the context of everything that happened. I mean, you can see Peter sitting there saying, you know, wait a second, you remember, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we had Mount Transfiguration and there were just three of us that were up there. And I want to tell you that that changed me in ways that you could never explain. And, uh, the greatest are the people that experience that. And, and, you know, Jesus only chose three of us, so he must love us more. He knew he was preparing us for greatness. And then maybe John comes back and said, yeah, there were three of us. I was one of them, but 
I wasn't the one who got out of the boat and started sinking when you started to walk on water. So, so let's redefine who should be greatness. And Andrew comes back and he starts arguing about, you know, but you did that. And, and I think that was what was going on. Here's what I deserve. Here's what I've earned. I mean, that was the tone of the argument because they had an idea of greatness that was the world's definition. There was a basis of something that is earned. Isn't that the value system of our world? People that have power, people that have influence, people that have been wealth, you know, well, I've earned it, I've deserved it, I, I, I've, I've accomplished this. But Jesus confronts that attitude again in verse three. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, let me put this up here. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, even here, there's a little surprise. Because we, we said, well, wait, you're talking about greatness in the kingdom of heaven. But here you're saying that you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And why does he say that? Because the gospel is all about admitting that we can't earn our way into heaven. It's admitting our spiritual need. It's admitting our sins and asking for God's grace, for God's unmerited favor. And if we think if we understand that getting into heaven is something that is purely based on grace and not in any way that, you know, that we can do that. If, if you don't understand that, you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. If you're coming and saying, God, I'm doing this, I'm trying hard, you know, you're trying to get there on your own merit and you'll never get there. The gospel is admitting my need and saying, God, I, I, Jesus died on the cross and I ask you to forgive me based on faith alone, not by my works. And now if that's what it means to get into the kingdom of heaven, should we see, be surprised that Jesus says, and if you want to understand the kingdom of heaven, greatness is on the same basis. It's not what you do. It's based on acceptance of grace and what is done for you. Because if we understand, if we think we're great because we've done great things, you know, what, what reality is you suddenly, your whole value system is out of accord with the humble kingdom of heaven. If you understand that, no, I'm here out of my low status and out of grace, as he says in verse four, whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Even as it relates to child, what is he saying? In the world's value system, again, status is something that we achieve, something that we deserve, that we somehow we've done it. And think of a preschooler, think of a four-year-old. What have they achieved? What, have, what, have, what is the status that they've earned? What have they done? They've not done anything. You know, what position that they have, you know, what have they done to earn that position? Anything they have comes as a result of the relationship with their parents and the grace and the love that the parents show. Think about it. Preschoolers are completely helpless. They're dependent on the grace and generosity and the love of their parents. It's not in any way based on what you've done. Could you imagine a four-year-old coming out there and say, I should be the leader of the adults because here's what I've done. I mean, that's kind of, kind of a silly thought to even imagine. No, no, we understand as a preschooler, everything that they have, it's a gift of their parents. And they live in total and complete dependency upon the love and generosity of their parents. Every item of clothing, every, every food, every experience they have is a gift. It's at the mercy of the parents. And it was especially true in Jesus' day where there wasn't any government support systems that if the parents dropped the ball, that, I mean, there was no backup. And so we understand this. You know, what do we want? We want our kids to understand this. They actually, when they understand it, they're more secure. Why? Because if a child in any way thinks, well, I earned it, I deserved it, well, suddenly they misbehave and they're suddenly worried that their parents are going to maybe reject them. If the child understands, I didn't deserve it, 
that I'm giving this. I'm, I'm loved by my parents based on grace. Suddenly they don't have to worry about losing their status, losing their love. So when Jesus teaches in verse four, whoever humbles himself like this child is in the greatest in heaven, he's teaching that the basis of our greatness has changed. We've been made great not through our performance, not through who we are, you know, but based on the sense that we're adopted, that we're made a child of the king. And based on that status, if properly understood, it should lead to a combination of incredible confidence because our identity is such that we are a child of the king, but at the same time, incredible humility and servanthood because we realize we did nothing to deserve it. But how do we then come to this? How do, what's this look like to actually understand this and to accept it? You know, the, this path to discovering this, this greatness that Jesus is talking about. Let's go back to again, verse three. In verse three, he says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now notice he says, you turn. Literally, the, we could be turn around. And he says, okay, you're headed in one direction, and unless you realize that you're headed in the wrong direction and turn around and head in the opposite direction, you, you're never gonna enter the kingdom of heaven, let alone understand greatness. And then in verse four, he says, whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now I think, Verse three and verse four is saying the same thing in two different ways. Turning around and humbling ourselves are two ways of talking about the same concept. Sometimes we talk in, 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 in the church about the idea of repentance. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about this idea that we see anything in our life that God points out and said, this is wrong, that we have the humility to say, God, I'm willing to admit that this is wrong and I'm willing to turn. I'm asking you to forgive me and I'm willing to turn and I want you to change me. There's humility of not making excuses. There's a humility of not defending ourselves, and, but, but we just humbly admit, you're right, I'm wrong. And God, I need to change. And that, that's hard, it requires humility. It's not only a humility that relates to other people differently, it's how we relate to ourselves. Now, you know why this can be hard? Because we live in a world where so much of interaction is defined by what we do, what we earn. And, and what happens is that if we believe that in any way God accepts us based on what we're, our accomplishments, then we're suddenly worried that if I admit that I have failed in some way, well, then I lose my worth. I lose my value. It's threatened. But if I understand my value and worth before God isn't based on what I've done, but it's based on my acknowledgement of my need and my acceptance of the love of, of, of God, that I've been adopted as a son, well, suddenly now, I can, I can be humble. I can admit I've done it because God isn't gonna reject me. So if you think that you're great because of who you are, or what you've done, what's gonna happen is you're gonna be blind to your flaws or you're gonna defend them. You can't admit them. You have that insecurity. But if on the other hand, if you understand that you are accepted, if you have that humility of understanding your relationship is about who you are in Christ, Suddenly, there's an openness, there's a humility that, that says, I can be open about my needs. And what he's saying is that the mark of a truly great person is a person that repents, but also at the same time, what makes us great, repentance is the way to true greatness, spiritual greatness. Okay, so what does this look like? Now, this kind of a theological part up till now, but, but how do we translate this into practice? What if somebody has discovered this kind of greatness, practically, what does it look like in the way that we live our lives? Well, let's again see what Jesus is saying here. If we come to Jesus, we recognize that, you know, that it's not about who I am, what I've done, it's not what I have to offer. I'm coming as a child. 
What's that look like? Verse four and five, whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And so first of all, when we understand this and we empty ourselves of our status, we become free to love other people who have no status. And it's a greatness that's then expressed through humble servanthood. Again, they're arguing about greatness. And Jesus doesn't say, well, no, you know, uh, be great like the world, you wanna do that. Nor does he say, don't be great. But he says, okay, I want you to be great, but in the right way. It's a good amb ambition, but you have the wrong definition. And you've gotta humble yourself like a child. And when you humble yourself in a child, what happens is that you will, at the, at the, at, if you understand that, you will then, as he says in verse five, the one who, uh, one such, uh, anyone who receives one such child in my name receives me. The expression of greatness is in receiving children. And it's not only children, again, because the child is the one who has no status. Greatness is, is a humble servanthood of people who have no status, people who aren't great in the world's eyes. You know, we see this even in the way we think, even in church. When you come in church on a Sunday morning and, and, and you probably tend to think, oh, well, who's preaching to? Well, Joseph preached last week and did a great job. It's Pastor Mike's this week and who's leading worship and, and who's the leaders and who the, who the, they're the people of significance. And I mean, how often do you go in and you say, man, who are the great people here today? Well, let's go into the nursery. Let's go into children's ministry. Who's serving there? That, well, they're the people that are doing things that are significant. Now, we wouldn't think that naturally, but what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, okay, if you want to look at greatness, well, go look at the person that's serving the kids. That's greatness in the kingdom of heaven. That's of great value. And so in Jesus' value system, the greatest people here may be the people that are working with the kids. That's his value system. And, and, and not only that, but how do we define value of the people we interact with? I mean, we naturally think of, I mean, if you, if you were to come into church and you were saying, man, I met somebody, what if somebody significant, somebody famous came into church today and you got to interact with them, you know? So, so we would say maybe in, in political terms and, and, you know, we said, okay, we, we've got, a, you know, Joe Biden came to church or, or Donald Trump and man, I got to interact with them and man, that would be, okay, well, um, they, 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 they all got baggage. So, so let's, let's find someone we can all agree on that's really great. Okay, uh, this Cleveland, Joe Flacco. Okay, that's, that's, that's great. Somebody great came to church. I mean, that's the quarterback, came off the couch, leading the Browns to this playoff run. I mean, we all agreed that's great. Now, if he came to church, he'd be, they gave him off today. He, he's here today, and, and wouldn't that be awesome if you met him? And you'd say, well, mate, this person came to church today. I was, I, was, I was a greeter, and I greeted him. I shook his hand. I served him coffee. We might brag about that. We might feel that's significant, right? We have, Cody has two four-year-old boys. Did you brag about meeting them? See, now what Jesus is saying is, those are the ones that are great. He, they're the ones that Jesus pulled in the middle and said, anyone who welcomes them welcomes me. That's what greatness is. It's greatness expressed through humble servanthood. That's where God is lifting up. See, the church that is great is the one that welcomes and embraces the least in society. Greatness comes by investing ourselves in people who have nothing to offer. That's, that's great. Now, practically, even in children's ministry, not only those that come in who have nothing to offer, but in children's ministry, it's a practical challenge. I'm gonna give a practical challenge, especially to men. I mean, studies show that you have about 40% of kids in today's world are gonna go to bed tonight without a dad in their home. 
We need men to be involved in their lives. And I hope as a church that this is a place that we can have people that come in and, and moms that don't have the dads in their life and you've got men that are going to step up and that are like the guys that are involved and are ready and, on Sunday morning and Wednesday night and saying, okay, we're going to invest in these men because we need men to do that and say, this is of great value. This is, you know, this is of, of great significance. Greatness comes by investing ourselves in the people who have nothing to offer in return. That's what God celebrates. Now, in this, there's also a balance to be held because we've got to see this definition of greatness is also rooted in humble confidence. And here's the balance that we need to have because it says, well, it's calling us to humility, to be humble like a child. But that doesn't mean it's a humility that things that we have nothing to offer. Again, Jesus is responding to his disciples' question, who is greatest amongst you? And he doesn't tell them, don't ask that. He's saying, no, let me teach you how to be great. And that doesn't mean having a low view of ourselves. It doesn't mean that you'd say, well, no, you can't be great. You have nothing to offer. No, he's saying you should be great. You have something to offer. Otherwise, he wouldn't call you to a life of greatness. And there are times people that will come back and say, well, I don't have anything to offer. I can't be great. I don't, I don't have any gifts. I don't have any ability. That's falling into the same lie as the disciples fell into when they're asking, how do we become great based on our performance? Because both of those lies are saying, I'm defining my greatness by my ability, by my performance, by who I am. Some are looking and saying, look at how good I am. I should be great based on how good I am. And other people are saying, look at how bad I am, how little I have to offer. I can't be great because of who I am. Both of them totally miss this whole thing of grace, of who Jesus Christ calls us to be. He calls us to be people who live a life of significance, not based on who we are, on our ability and our past and our performance, but based on faith in Jesus Christ that lets him work through us. See, we're, we're not just the children who have nothing to offer. We have been made, made children of God. Last week, Joseph talked about Ephesians. Well, look at how it says in Ephesians chapter 1, how it begins. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. If you're full of Christ, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose you before the foundation, before you did anything good or bad. It wasn't about who you were. It was about his grace. Continues, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, he adopted us. We are now made sons of the king. We're sons of Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, so we are not, not only, you know, children, we have this inheritance, having predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's of who we are. And because you're adopted and you've been given the Holy Spirit, you receive God's gifts of grace. He's given you incredible worth. He's not only given you incredible worth, he's given you an incredible calling, a capacity for greatness. And he calls you to live a life that is great in spiritual terms. He's not only called you, he's empowered you to live it. So look at what it says, going back to Ephesians, Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece. You are exactly the person whom God has designed. Why? That he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so you can do the good things that he's planned for you long ago. That he's called you to live this life of significance. You're the masterpiece to go live it. 
Do you understand that? God has called you to this life of significance. Understand that. Live into it. You, you, you want to be the person that makes the difference. And that's what Jesus is responding to here. So when we look at this whole passage, he's, where he's calling us to honor God through our pursuit of greatness. And when the disciples come and they say, you know, you know who's the greatest? He doesn't say, well, don't seek to be great. He says, you're seeking the wrong way. Seek to be great. And he redefines what that greatness is. And the way he redefines it, he says, this is something that is accessible to us all. So no matter what your family of origin, no matter what your financial status, no matter what your accomplishments in school or in the athletic field, no matter how many followers you have on social media, no matter what your past is, what your scars is, no matter you know, what your intelligence, no matter any of those things, God has called you to be his child. And he's called you, not only saving you from sin, but saving you to a life of significance and said, now I'm calling you to live a life of greatness. And all of us have his potential of followers, the potential as followers of Jesus Christ to be great, not according to the world's definition, but by his definition. And I think about that even as we start this new year. That's a great challenge for us to start the year with to say, okay, what if we understand this? What if we really embrace this calling that we have in Jesus Christ, this identity that we have in Jesus Christ, and that we just don't go through life and just kind of accepting or chasing after the world, but we say, okay, I want to hear this call that God has given me, and I want to live the life of significance that God has called me to. God, help me to understand who I am and you, and help me understand what it means to be great in your eyes. Who are the people that have nothing to offer, whether it's the children or the, you know, the, the needy, whoever it is, the people that have nothing to offer, the people that, how do I humble myself in such a way that I then serve those who are humble, that are in need? And God, I want to live the kind of life where I have an impact. I am the great parent or grandparent, where I'm the great spouse, where I'm, I, I'm impacting people and, I, and I've got people in my life that because of my investment in them are going to say, that's somebody that I look to as an example. That's somebody I look to as great because they're letting God work through them to be Christ to these people that God has put you in your sphere of influence. I hope that you'll embrace that call, that together as a church that we can embrace that call. And as we do, I look forward to seeing what God will do in our, my life and your life and the life of this church is we embrace this call to greatness that he gives us. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.